Thyatira was founded as a military garrison by Alexander the Great, and they worshipped Apollo in the temple that was constructed for him. It was a prosperous town because of the vibrant colors that they could produce of the textiles, and, and they could only be produced here. But the town was one that had lots of guilds or labor unions, and they were the center, these labor unions, of social and religious life. The festivals were held and they worshipped Apollo, who was actually called the Son of God. The participation in this was mandatory if you were going to stay in good standing with the guild. The followers of Jesus, the true Son of God, faced social and religious persecution and even exclusion from the trades, which would have meant the loss of their livelihood if, if they didn't participate in the eating and the drinking and the sexual immorality and the worship of Apollo. Every follower of Jesus had to choose, and it wasn't an easy choice. To make it more difficult, they were being encouraged by someone in the church that it was okay to participate in these festivals, it was okay to go along in order to keep their jobs. And this person was very convincing. These followers of Jesus needed a reminder that they had to value Him over acceptance, over job, over career, to, to not relent and to hold on to what no one can take away. So John delivered this message to them from Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are, are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we examine this message to the church of Thyatira, to what the Lord said to them then, let us understand what he is saying to us now. So, as we have been going through these churches and these messages, um, my, my hope is that this is more than just historical data or um, peaking curiosity or looking at things that have been fascinating. Because the messages to these churches 
And, and the message to the churches after them include us. So if we come to the Word of God and we don't walk away from the Word of God with something that affects us, that draws us closer to who Jesus is and what he desires of us, then we have to ask the question, what are we doing? Right? I've, I've been in conversation with a, a guy or two this week um, on what we've been reading together in Exodus. And it has been quite literally blowing my mind as I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting things that I've probably read hundreds of times. And the Lord is bringing those things to light and, and offering insight through other places in Scripture and all of those things about how he operates, who he is in his character and all of those things. And the goal of that is, is not just to be able to say, hey, I read through Exodus together with the rest of Hope Chapel. That's not the goal at all. It's a worthy it's a worthy opportunity, but it's not the goal because the goal is to walk away from every encounter with the Word of God and have it be an encounter with God. So that's where we are today as we look at Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18, the letter to the church at Thyatira. So Thyatira is one of the sites of the churches with some of the least amount of excavation done and the least amount of ruins that are there. Um, But what's interesting about that is it's also the longest message that Jesus gave to the churches. A couple of pictures here. Um, You'll see in the background the stores and those kind of things. And you'll see the sparse nature of all of the, the ruins that are there. The things that archaeologists have, re, have uh, revealed about Thyatira are actually very little from the New Testament period. But some of the excavations have revealed some of the things related to the temples and the gods who were being worshipped. And a lot of that was found in coins and things that were being used at the time. According to inscriptions found at Thyatira, there were a lot of trade unions or guilds, is an older word for it, uh, including brass and bronze and baking and pottery and leatherworks and wool and linen. The latter being known for the ability that they had in that region to produce a red or deep purple color that could be found nowhere else. But Thyatira was kind of a working class town. Thyatira was a gateway to Pergamum, the capital. And and, and Thyatira, unlike some of the other spots that had either high mountains or or high plateaus or deep valleys or whatever, it it wasn't like that at all. In fact, it had really no natural defenses. And even the, the troops that were placed there in different times, because it was overrun and destroyed and overrun and destroyed and rebuilt and overrun and destroyed, countless times. The the troops that were there and stationed there recognized that their only purpose was to slow down any invaders coming from that direction at at getting to Pergamum. How how would you like that? You were were the sacrificial lamb. Uh, Just just hold them long enough to get a message to us that they're coming, okay? That's, That's what we need you to do. But Alexander the Great built 
a, a garrison headquarters there. And the, the God of this garrison, the God that was worshipped as the inspiration for these troops was Apollo, known as the Son of God. There were many that were called in those ways, but Apollo was known as the Son of God. And, and worship to him was a priority and a focus for the, the garrison, the troops that were there. As you read this letter, you, you get a sense of things being exposed. In fact, you get that in all of the letters, right? You, you get this sense that, that Jesus is exposing things purposefully. And as we've been going through, it, it seems like it gets a little worse and a little worse each time in the culture of the church. It's the reminder that the, the culture of the church is one that needs to maintain a biblical standard. Or else it's just going to be an empty shell. Dean and I were talking this week and and talking with someone that's getting to go to one or two of the places that we went. And um, the thing that was amazing to us was that you had to pay to go into some of these. Now, some of these were still active churches, but you had to pay to go into the churches to see, you know, all of the the paintings and all of the architecture and all of that stuff. And one of the churches that we went into, you actually had to pay more to go back into the altar area. Isn't that interesting? The, the church becoming an empty shell of what it's called to be, doing things for reasons that are, that are just beyond understanding. The question to the church is always, will you live in humility and obedience to Jesus? Will you call out sin in your life individually and in the life of the church body as it's assembled? Will you repent and, and live lives that deal with sin thoroughly, calling it what it is and exposing its evil design? That's one of the things that the church has struggled with in most recent years, is actually calling sin what it is. Using biblical terminology, the the terminology that God gave to man to say, this is what it is, and instead, it's an issue. It's a thing that I've done. It's a mistake that I've made. The church was born in Acts. And it was given guidance for the culture it was called to maintain by the spiritual, by, by the Spirit of God. And, and the church in Thyatira was called out for allowing that culture not to call out apostasy. Those who were unrepentant had no desire to repent and were teaching things that were literally anti-God. Anti-Christ. If, if Jesus didn't care about the condition of the church, why would he make it so personal in these letters? I mean, there's, there's references, as we have studied already, there's references in these letters that, that could not be made to another specific place as it was made to Ephesus or Pergamum, Right? He, he pointed out 
things of correction, encouragement, rebuke. It was, it was personal. And so when Jesus speaks to the church in that location, and then he says it's for all the churches, he's, he's allowing us to know that, look, this is not something that is going to happen in one place at one moment in time. This is going to be something that the church is going to deal with forever. In fact, a lot of the things that are in this letter to Thyatira today are the same things that Paul wrote to Timothy and and called him to recognize in what was going on in the church that he was a part of. That the, the battle on the outside was only a portion of the battle. In fact, the greater battle would actually be from the inside. Tearing it up from the inside out. This is what we hear In this letter, as John begins to record Jesus, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church in Thyatira, the Son of God. Now, I like to personally think here that this was kind of a smackdown of Apollo. I really do. Because Apollo was no God at all, right? And and yet they worshipped him as a god, and they took their inspiration from him as a god, and they were able to get drunk and, and involved in all kind of immorality as a result of their worship to him. But this was a smackdown. The Son of God, not Apollo, who has eyes like a flame of fire, the, the imagery of that is pretty powerful. And, you know, we've been able to capture that to some degree in, in movies that we've seen. You've seen these superhero types or whatever, and their eyes, you know, go get on fire or whatever, and they shoot things out of their eyes. Thyatira, the people there would have had no concept of what we have visually seen, right, in, in our generation. But what they would have understood was a flame of fire. They, they would have understood the power of that. So the imagery is powerful and, and it reveals a vision that is all-consuming because that's what fire does. It consumes. It, uh, there, there was an idea of it penetrating and, and something that nothing can be concealed from. And his feet are like burnished bronze. There's, there are many thoughts as to how this can be interpreted. Um, he's immovable. He's unstoppable. He's holy. He's pure. It stands for his judgment. All, all having their part in trying to understand the significance. But the most simple reason for the use was related uh, in, in illustration to what those who worked in and around these trade unions and guilds, and in the bronze trade especially, would have understood, once again, the personal nature of what Jesus is speaking to the church. Because it took something to get bronze to that place. It was, it was something that just wasn't done with every use for bronze. It, it, was, it was a powerful thing. And the, all of the imagery that's being there, Jesus says this, I know your deeds. Again, if Jesus doesn't care about what we do, why did he put it in the message to all the churches and say it's forever message to the churches? What we do matters. He said, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater 
than at first. You started out here, but now you're here. The deeds are greater than, than they were at first. The, the statement was a, a commendation of these followers of Jesus in this working class town, right? And it actually put them in a little bit better light than Ephesus. This, this major metropolis, this city with hundreds of thousands of people and all of this stuff. And here's Thyatira over here and working class town. And Jesus says, look, I, I know your deeds and, and the love and the faith and the service and the perseverance. These believers had increased rather than decreased. And, and that was something to be said, especially for the times that they were living in, right? Have you ever been on a job... And when you started that job, you were really excited about that job. And, and you did your, your best at that job and, and you worked eight hours because you were getting paid eight hours or you worked 12 hours because you were getting paid 12 hours. And then after a while, there's, there's some problems on the job, personalities, conflict, you know, um, all, all of those things. And machines start breaking down or, or, or people aren't giving you what you need in order to accomplish your job. And now you actually uh, spend about four hours actually working and the rest of the time you're complaining and moaning and, and, and you're, you know, playing solitaire on the computer or you're finding the break room when nobody's there. You're right. You, you understand. It's, it's difficult to get better and better and better to do more and more and more, especially in an environment that is pushing you to be focused on other things. That is that is surrounding you and and calling for you to be less. Right? It's hard to be that employee that says, "No, no, no! I'm I'm not going to cheat on my timesheet by not working. I get a break at this time." I get lunch at this time, I get a break at this time, and then I go home. It's hard to be that person. It's hard to have that integrity. But this is what Jesus was saying to them about their deeds, that they, they had actually started here and, and they had gotten better. Something to be said for the times in which they were living. It, it almost makes what comes next a little bit of a whiplash to us, because we, we're, just, we're hearing Jesus say, man, you guys are doing great. In fact, you're, you're better now than you, you were before. But I have this against you. Wait, wait. It's like, it's like you receive the commendation, right? And then they tell you, but let me give you this book of all the things that you know, are still in error. I have this against you that you tolerate. That word has gotten a lot of mileage in our culture, right? And in our culture, tolerate normally means this, that as long as you agree with me, right, then I will tolerate you. But if you have something I can't agree with, then I'm not going to tolerate you. Tolerate used to mean that as long as um, you didn't affect what I'm doing, I would let you do what you're doing. But it's shifted. The word is, is a little bit different in its meaning, but the word as it's being used here is they, they, they tolerated, they, they let go or they let pass or they permitted 
making it clear that they made no effort to deal with whatever it was that Jesus is bringing to light. Namely, he says, the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I thought about this this week. Uh, um, you know, we've, we've read this a couple of times. They commit acts of immorality. They eat things sacrificed to idols. And I, I thought about where those things were mostly consumed. Right? The meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Who, who were the people that were more than likely to consume them? Would they be used as part of the feasts that were to the pagan gods? And, and, and maybe that that has some overlying influence on this being said by Jesus. Now, whether this name, Jezebel, is a real name or simply a reference to the wife of Ahab in the Old Testament, I, I don't know that we can definitively say. I have heard people say, well, you know, it, it, it's probably not a real name because, I mean, how many people would name their kid Judas? Right? Judah, maybe, but not Judas, right? There, there, was, there was implication there. And so this particular scholar said, oh, nobody would name their kid Jezebel. It didn't stand for anything. I, I, I don't know that the name really matters to us that much. What's clear is she was a woman who claimed a title, prophetess. And, and maybe even claim this title along with it being a gift from God by the Holy Spirit. She was a woman who was allowed to have great influence over the followers of Jesus. Now, lest you think I'm picking on women, um, read through the men in Scripture. They made plenty of mistakes too, right? But here... In this particular situation, this was a woman doing this. She was a promoter of errant views, convincing weaker followers of Jesus to be disobedient and to sin against God. Their, their tolerance meant that the followers of Jesus, who knew the truth, they let her continue to promote herself as one who hears from God and one who is a spokesman for God without any accountability. How many times have you heard people say something in church? You've heard a pastor, you've heard a teacher or whatever, and, and you go, well, that, that just doesn't ring true. And... You just went home and you didn't think any more of it and you just let it go. This was going on here. There was no accountability in this. They, they let her teach and lead people, according to Jesus, knowing she was teaching error and leading them away from Jesus without confrontation. And this is especially grievous because in, in the midst of of all they were facing. All these followers of Jesus were facing, from refusing to worship the pagan gods, to the refusal of worshiping the emperor himself as God, 
to living in a place where there was constant persecution because of the name of Jesus and because they stood for Christ? They, they needed a fellowship of believers to, to be a place where, where they could gather with those who understood the truth, who believed the truth, so that they could be encouraged, that they could be built up, that they could receive words of life, strengthened for today, given bright hope for tomorrow, right? This is what they needed. Jesus focused people, loving him and living in the hope of who he is. But instead, they found the same thing inside the church that they found outside the church. Corruption and compromise to the world around them. And, and the, the strong personality in the church was the one telling them it was okay. Continually causing them to wander is what we get from the word used for leads. And seduction is what we get from the techniques that were being used by this woman. Make no mistake, this this influence was more than just go along to get along. It was deeply rooted in the experience of spiritual things outside of what could be lived in truth, in in righteous behavior, outside of what could be known and experienced in Jesus by the Spirit of God. She was purposefully perverting the grace of God making a way for a sin-filled free-for-all for everyone in order to corrupt the soul. This is is heavy. This is is important. And and, and sometimes we can see sin and and the people who are influencing others in sin and, and somehow be be passive, thinking that since it doesn't affect us directly, there will not be any harm to anyone else. But as is clear here, left unaddressed, left unaccountable, it leads to pain and corruption and death. What should have been the call to this woman from everyone who knew the truth? concerning the evil that she was espousing. The call should have been, repent. Repent. And and clearly, that is where Jesus was dealing with her, reminding, I gave her time to repent. Repent. Despite the error and destruction she caused in the Lord's church. This is overwhelming to me as it relates to the grace and the mercy of God. Because this error and this destruction that she had caused in the Lord's church, Jesus shows his patience and his mercy to her anyway. True to his character, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
The, the unfortunate part is that there was no desire on her part to repent. Now, Jesus said this. He says, and, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, Jesus is not simply mastering the obvious. He knows the heart, right? But it should have been clear to everybody that there was no desire there to repent. Of course, what we read is that there was really no call either. There's, there's another aspect of this that I believe we need to see clearly, and that is the call to repent. Because while we know sin is evil, destructive and deadly, it's driven by desire of the heart, the thoughts of the mind, it's carried out in the deeds of the flesh. Jesus' greater focus is not on the issue of a single sin, as serious as that sin might be. Now hang with me here. His, his greater focus is on the hesitancy, the, the unwillingness to repent. The, the refusal to repent is the mark of one unwilling to be ruled, unwilling to be changed. It's the mark of one that is not in submission to Jesus. The mark of one that is in submission to Jesus is when confronted by their sin, they may go, no, I, but I, I just want, right? They, they might do that. There, there might be such a draw there that they, they want to they keep that, whatever it is. And I, I'm not talking about immorality and I'm not talking about all of those things. I, I'm talking about maybe anger. That is unrighteous, sinful anger. I'm talking about anxiety sometimes that will prove that I truly don't believe or trust God for whatever it is. The one humble submitting to Jesus has a mark on them of repentance. This is why true repentance will never leave someone in the same place. It changes them. Here, Jesus was persistent, allowed time, gave opportunity after opportunity, but the heart was hardened, would not hear or heed the truth, and would not listen to the call to turn from sin. This is the place where each individual forfeits mercy for judgment. And their consequences for their sin become their own. This woman, Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her on, into, is another translation there, a bed of sickness. Where this woman may have been seemingly somewhat unaffected as she seduced others into sin. Maybe she was even living in ease. Maybe she was even living in pleasure. Because of her position of influence, she was somebody. Jesus says she will now face the reality of all of the ravages of sin. What it is and what it does. And she will face it personally. 
he adds to that. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. The judgment, the weight of the suffering of sin, the sorrow, the torment in the body and the soul was going to be known in abundance by all those who stood on the side of sinful things. Unless. Unless. That's a big word in there. Unless. Notice there is a way out of this tribulation that is coming to those who are following sin-filled ways. Humility and hearing the call of Jesus. Sorrow over sin and sorrow over the stubbornness of rebellion. The rejection of my own way and submission to his authority. Jesus is merciful and he is always there to hear and to Accept the cry of a repentant heart. Jesus makes three I will statements here as he promises to bring judgment to the hardened hearts in this sin-plagued church. The second one is this, and I will kill her children with pestilence. This is why some of the stuff of scripture is really tough to hear. The Old Testament has stuff like this that is really tough to hear. But in reality, by the time this letter was written, the church at Thyatira was probably about 40 years old. And, and the first followers of Jesus, right, the first ones that had come to Christ and, and, and confessed their sin and turned from it and, and were following him, the first generation of the believers in Thyatira had now given life to a next generation. The next generation that would grow up behind them. The next generation of the followers of Jesus, a good thing, right? However, they had also seen the next generation grow up under the influence of this Jezebel and all of her error. Much like today, there there are those who were raised in the church who simply leave it. But then there are those who walk in error and stay in the church and influence others to walk in that error with them. This was the case here. Again, the the call was to repentance, and, and there was mercy and grace to be found in humble submission to Jesus. But absent that, there was captured in the word, kill with pestilence, It was a Hebraism, and it means to slay with the most awful death. Or it means to die by really dying, right? So it was was an intensity to the way in which a person was going to die. Oh, you're going to die, but you're going to die a death that you would wish that was not the way to die, right? 
So awful were these judgments that Jesus said, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I think sometimes the church has forgotten that. That Jesus, in his patience, is not looking the other way. That Jesus, in his mercy, is not capitulating Once these things began to come, after the judgment of the church at Thyatira began, all the other churches would know, and they would be warned. They would be warned of allowing the same thing to take place in them, namely, tolerating sin, no accountability, no confrontation. They would also know that nothing would be hidden from Jesus. Because he says again about the deeds, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. This is the third I will statement Jesus makes. And in it, he reminds them that he's not just going to be any judge. He's going to be a just judge. Because a just judge can't allow someone to continually break the law, or there's no law. At the same time, a just judge can't judge someone who is innocent just because somebody else is guilty. He reminds them that he will be a just judge. You will never find anyone in the history of eternity that will stand before the Lord and be able to say, you were unjust. And everyone who receives judgment will do so for their own deeds, not someone else's. I've been talking about original sin with one of our college students, and, and as we've been talking about this just a little bit, one of the things that was, was brought up was to blame God because he allowed sin to come into the world, and yet in Jesus, at, he allowed everybody to be affected by sin from that point on, but in Jesus, he just didn't save everybody automatically. And the one thing that allows us to do is take the focus off of us. If I can blame God for it, then it couldn't be my fault. Must, must not be. I, I was, I was born that way. Those I will statements of Jesus are important. Sin's consequences will be realized. Sin's consequences are horrible. Sin's judgment will be just. It's important to get another important point here, in this part of the letter, and that's how the church believes and how the church behaves both matter to Jesus. Because belief without behavior is not belief. And behavior that goes against belief proves unbelief. It's also reminding us of how much Christ desires his church to live free from the weight and the destructive power of sin. And he will do whatever it takes to deal with it. And and even if it seems he is allowing some things to go on unchecked, it is often his patience and his mercy 
giving opportunity for grace to produce repentance. How would you like for God to judge you on your worst day? Raise your hand. How many of us hope that in some way, when God is judged, he judges on our best day? Right? We, we recognize that, that we want the patience and the mercy of God. And yet sometimes when we see everything going on around us, we think he's being too patient. He's being too merciful. He needs to do something about it right now. Just as abrupt and corrective as the last transition statement was, but I have this against you. This one is equally as encouraging and comforting. Jesus says, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. You may have noticed that there's three specific groups here being addressed by Jesus. Those who were the followers of Jezebel. Those who were the followers of Jesus who were being led astray by Jezebel. And then the rest of the followers of Jesus who did not hold to her teachings at all. In, in addressing these three groups, a phrase is used, the deep things of Satan. Ooh, man, if that's not a revelation term, right? Something that we can go speculate on and go all around and write books on and everything else. The deep things of Satan. Well, there's, there's a, a few views as to exactly what the phrase means, but it, it seems clear that it was a phrase that was actually being used by either Jezebel or her followers in some way. Um those that were promoting the error, or, or possibly by her. But the statement reveals what was behind much of the Nicolaitan error and what would take place in some of the later Gnosticism that would plague the church. The idea that by delving into pagan philosophies, right, by, by bringing those pagan philosophies and practices into our understanding and, and starting to wash all those things together, um, that, that one could better understand and be better equipped to understand and even help those who didn't understand to experience freedom. This is not something new that we are experiencing in the church today, where people are bringing all manner of secular things into the church to try to explain why people are the way they are. There, is, there, there are so many things that, that have come in and, and, and are, are being used, and, and instead of having discernment by the Spirit of God... There is only what man can discern about what he observes with his own eyes. 
But what happens when this begins to be brought in, the, the pagan philosophies, the worldly views, all of these terms and all of these things that, that take the terms that the scripture use and somehow wash them a little bit, make them more palatable, make them more tolerable, can't say sin, can't say repentance, can't say any of those kind of things. What, what, what we, we then find out is that there is the thought process that there is greater knowledge to be had maybe than what I've been told in the scriptures. There, there's greater knowledge that can come from somewhere else other than God. And I need to delve into that because that will make me a complete person of understanding. That was used at the very beginning of mankind's existence on the planet. Think Satan with Eve in the garden. And the only one who could help Eve understand, right, what was really going on with those trees and with that fruit and what God was thinking was Satan himself. All this while continuing to believe Right? These people that were involving themselves in this, the, the deep things of Satan, so, so whether it was just the pagan philosophies and all that stuff, or it really was demonic. And, and they were being drawn in to familiarity with spirits that were evil. All the while, they were continuing to believe and be told that they could also come to the gathering of the followers of Jesus and worship God too. It was a form of pluralism. But God is one. And of course, this was delusional and deceptive thinking meant only to drag whoever was willing into the pit. But, but what it does reveal is the true battle that takes place within the church when spiritual error and sinful living is tolerated and left unchecked in the church. Now, am I saying that we should get a bunch of people and give them uniforms, teach them how to march in a step like this, give them a salute that they can have, that everybody knows that they're the, the ones in charge and all of that, and they go about looking for everybody's sin? I am not saying that. Much like it was at the end of the first century, though, there is a revival of sorts in the spirit of Jezebel in the church today. There are a lot of people now who will claim to be spiritual, but they will not claim to be godly. And there is a difference. There are a lot of errant teachers tolerated who have zero accountability. Sin, as defined in Scripture, finds a home in the silence of the followers of Jesus. And, and partially, I believe, and this is where the Lord has had me, that maybe the reason for that is because we have not dealt with sin thoroughly. Maybe we've tolerated it in others 
because we've tolerated it in us. But God's not silent. God's not silent. He's allowing time to repent before he brings about his judgment. So to this third group that Jesus speaks to, who do not hold this teaching and have not known the deep things of Satan, Jesus does not add anything to the burden that they are already living, being in this environment that is a pressure cooker of physical and spiritual things. Look, you haven't given in. I'm not going to lay any more burden on you. You don't have to come to church three, three times a day and pray. You don't have to do certain things to check a box. You don't have to make sure that you, you know, take communion uh, once a week, right? I, I'm, I'm not going to lay any more burden on you, Jesus says. But recognizing the reality that they have already been doing right things before the Lord, he gives them a command. He says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. This is the first reference to Christ's coming for the church in this revelation. And, and what an encouragement it would have been to these followers of Jesus who had to sit in an environment where a teacher was teaching errant things and nobody was saying anything. So what do they already have? Nevertheless, what you have. What do they have? Jesus gave it at the beginning. He said, you have, you have a love for me. You have a strong faith concerning me. You are serving because of me. And you're persevering in difficult circumstances. That's what they had. So what do they need to do? Hold fast. That, that phrase is having power over or mastering even using force, even when resistance is encountered. In, in reality, they had to let some things, they, they had let some things slip. Maybe, maybe even let go of some things like standing for the truth. Right? We're not going to give them a complete pass on everything that they were doing because they're constantly being sanctified. They're constantly being called to be more like Jesus. But the call here is to grab all of those things that you know to be right and true and never let go of them. Hold on to the things worth holding on to until I come again. So what about us? Are, are there any things that, that we have to let go of individually or as a group of followers of Jesus so that we can regrip? Are, are the things we are holding on to, gripping tightly to, are they things that are going to keep us until he returns? Are there things that, that we have allowed or tolerated that need to be addressed and eliminated so as not to have Jesus stand against us? To these who Jesus commands to hold fast, he also says this, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, as we saw with Pergamum, there was a call to overcome, to triumph, to walk in victory, 
uh, over the world, over sin, over chaos, over corruption. And again, the reminder that what we need to do while we're on the planet matters and that his deeds, what Christ did, is our life mission. For it is to him... I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And as vessels of the potter are are broken into pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. he, He takes this promise from Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The scene here depicts an earthly one and speaks of participation that those who remain faithful to Jesus will someday rule with him on an earthly kingdom. Much, much more about this and, and the things that are, that are part of this are, are in Revelation, but here it's simply stated as a fact. There is coming a day when those who remain faithful to Christ, in spite of the suffering, the persecution, the overwhelming evil influence, the poverty, the trials, the neglect, the ridicule, the abandonment, the being left out of society and despised, they will rule with him in his kingdom. They will exercise authority over the nations as a shared responsibility and they will no longer be under the rule of another and any opposition will be shattered. Quite the motivation to hold fast. Quite the motivation to overcome. And the final statement of Jesus is one to me that is is really powerful before He concludes. And, not only all that stuff, but and, I will give him the morning star. From as far back as history allows, ancient Babylonian times, the the brightest planet was Venus, and it was known as the morning star. It's interesting about how that has been captured, though, because it's seen in the heavens at the darkest period of the night, just before the darkness passes away. It's an indicator that the morning is coming and that the first rays of the sun are near. Some have said that it is a pledge shown in nature to the faithfulness of God. But this was more than just a beautiful illustration because Peter had spoken of it when he said, so we have a prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. This was a glimpse of the future and and of a change that would take place in believers as their hearts finally reflect the fullness of the truth and, and righteousness of Jesus as they reflect the glory of the image of Christ. This is what Peter was driving at, but, but it was more than just a glimpse as John is giving it. Because later, 
The followers of Jesus in Thyatira and all of the churches would read at the end of the Revelation, Jesus saying this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Now, as this was read to them, as they listened to this and they hearkened back to, wait, 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 wait. He said that he would give us the bright and morning star. The, the promise that the followers of Jesus will one day reflect his glory is now understood in even more of what it means. Jesus is making the promise to give them himself. This is, this is not just a, 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 a glimpse into to something. It is Jesus giving himself to those who are his in all of his fullness. Paul tries to capture that for them in, in his letter to the Corinthian church. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face. You, you have to get the picture here of this illustration that is being given, this truth that is being given by Jesus. In the darkest period of this church's spiritual life, Jesus says to them, hold fast. Hold fast. And you will see me face to face. You will know me in all of my glory. There is no discouragement so deep that Jesus is not the hope. There is no trial so great that Jesus is not the help. And there is no darkness so overwhelming that he is not the light that overwhelms it. I don't know about you, but if I would have been sitting in the church of Thyatira, dealing with all that mess that was inside the church, all the mess that was outside the church, and I had been loving him, keeping the faith, serving and persevering, these would have been words of life. It would have been worth it to not go to the festival. It would have been worth it to say no. It would have been worth it to now stand. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The followers of Jesus in Ephesus were called to love him, to answer why and how they loved him. The followers of Smyrna were called to see their life as rich because if they had Jesus, they truly had everything they needed. The followers of Jesus in Pergamum were being called to overcome, to face error and compromise with truth, knowing the reward that awaited them. The followers of Jesus in Thyatira were being called to hold fast, to not tolerate false teachers and evil influencers, knowing that they have a future, and that future will be seeing him face to face. 
The questions I ask us to consider this week and to answer in the presence of Jesus are these. What do our deeds reflect? Do they reflect love and faith and service and perseverance? And are our deeds as of late greater than when we first came to Christ? Are we tolerating things we should not? And what are we truly holding on to? What are we holding on to as we await the moment that we will see him face to face? These letters weren't just to people at the end of the first century. They were to us today. To hear and hearken, right? I believe that Jesus wants to ask us all these questions and for us to answer them in his presence. So I would ask you to do just that this week. What do my deeds reflect? Are, are the deeds that are his deeds greater than when I first came to Christ? Am I tolerating things I shouldn't in my life and in those that influence my life? And what am I holding on to as I await his coming, as I await seeing him face to face? Let's stand together as we close out our time this morning. You have indulged me extra minutes for which I am thankful. Nobody got up and walked out. Thank you. But I believe the Lord is speaking to us, church. And though not every one of these things that is being said to each of these churches hits every one of us in the same way, I believe the Lord gave all of these things to the churches to cover everybody. To commend the things that are commendable and to correct the things that need correction. So that we can stand. So that we can hold on. So that we can love Jesus. And so that we can be a part of his kingdom's work here on the planet. And it's honest. And it's real. And it's true. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this group of family that are only a family because of who Jesus is. Otherwise, everybody here would find a different place to be and a different reason for being. And yet you brought us together here with purpose and design, Lord. And we know that you desire to use us for your glory. It starts with who we are in you. And as you work that through, as we answer these questions, I ask you, Lord, to allow them to be difficult where they need to be difficult. And, and I ask you, Lord, to allow there to be no greater burden felt if it's not needed. Lord, walk with us as we walk out of this place. In Jesus' name, amen.